Phil Diaz. I'm the pastor at Greencastle Church of the Nazarene, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. It's my prayer that God would use this podcast to speak to your life right where you're at. I pray it also builds your faith and helps give you perspective on how God can work, move, and transform your life. Enjoy the message. Discipleship is a journey of grace with Jesus as our guide and companion. This journey lasts a lifetime as we grow into an ever-increasing relationship with God. It begins as God prepares the path before us through provenient grace. His hand reaches out and beckons us to Him. This grace both precedes our response and enables our response. Next. Jesus rescues us from sin through saving grace and leads us into the truth that sets us free. When we accept Him, He redeems us, makes us a new creation, and adopts us into His family. Finally, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a life fully consecrated to God. Sanctifying grace begins the moment we experience salvation. Initial sanctification is followed by spiritual growth in grace until, in a moment of full consecration and complete surrender on our part, God purifies and cleanses the heart. We are all on this journey together. Christ calls His followers to a journey with others, from no faith to new faith to mature faith. Invite others to join you on your journey by sharing the story of God's grace in your life with others. To learn more, visit nazarene.org slash journey.
뜻이 하늘에서 이루어진 것 같이 땅에서도 이루어지이다. nossas dívidas. Mesmo já não pardonei esse lá é o que temos aqui. Vamos lá o coro minha voz aqui. Christ, we have more than a thousand treasures to celebrate, even in turmoil. The most common way we celebrate these treasures is in worship. Toward the end of last year, Nazarenes worldwide participated in the global service of thanks. Now, on the day originally scheduled to begin our 30th General Assembly, we join in a celebration of grace. In Jesus, the Son of God, the display of God's grace is so great that no one can even begin to comprehend it. Do you remember a time when someone asked you, why should I trust you? Implicitly or explicitly, this question reaches all of us. It is not offensive. Business minds master it. Marketing puts the question in our mouth and persuades us to follow carefully prepared steps leading to the answer. Some people say that they need only to look carefully at your eyebrows and cheeks to quickly decide if they can trust you. Others do it by observing your body language. Yet others will only trust you if their wise mind tells them to do so. Wise mind is what psychologists call the ability to combine logical thinking derived from our knowledge of the world with emotional awareness built by past experience to know what is true. Why should I trust Jesus? The Gospel of John helps us to find the answer. John presents Jesus as someone we can trust, not because of his eyebrows, cheeks, or body language, but because of who he is. John begins the book uh, with Christ's credential statement and ends by restating it. In chapter 13, a crucial conversation about Jesus' identity took place. Jesus was preparing the disciples for separation, the coming reunion, and what lay between. Peter, apparently unsure of exactly what he was asking, yet sincere, asked, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus replied, Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life for you. Thomas followed up with, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? These were honest questions. Peter and Thomas were not asking, why should we trust you? They had moved beyond that, but they could have said, we trust you, but it appears there are things you cannot trust us with. Even those of us who aren't that smart have uh, heard statements like, good question, this can further the discussion, or you have made a good contribution to the conversation. Jesus could have said that to Thomas and Peter. Instead, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus used the term I am with a metaphor to identify himself and invite not only Peter and Thomas, but everyone to trust him. I am. Ego eimi. I, yes, I am. I and no other am. I am the way. People look for ways to become, ways to achieve, ways to win, ways to overcome. Jesus' way goes far beyond instructions, information, rules, and opportunities. This way is a person who came to the world and faithfully fulfilled his mission to save and take those who would believe in him to be united to the Father. Speaking of the way was a powerful tool for Jesus to identify himself. His listeners were under the rule of the Roman Empire, famous for building ways to conquer and dominate. The first of those famous roads was the Apian Way. It was built to supply Roman allies during times of war. It linked captured cities to the great city of Rome. Thanks to its roads, Rome outpaced its enemies in a very short period of time. Jesus' more powerful, reliable, shown to be true way made the great Roman strategy appear very small. Jesus is the way that God himself built to take us not simply to a place of earthly triumph, but to himself. In this wonderful, explanatory, and edifying statement, Jesus affirms that the way that God came to us is the same way we come to God, Jesus. John Newton penned the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, in 1779. Newton certainly understood that God's gift of grace was not a one-time offering. Listen to the third verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. 
For John Newton, life was a journey. In God's grace, his undeserved loving commitment accompanied him every step of the way. And we know that every journey begins with the first step. As Nazarenes, we believe that God's grace working in our lives at that first step on the journey of salvation is called provenient grace. It is the grace that goes before our conversion. It is God reaching out to us even before we know it, even before we respond to His love and grace. It is God orchestrating circumstances and events, providing people and teaching, drawing us to Himself. It is a grace that prevents us from moving so far from God that we cannot respond to His offer of love. Religions are people seeking a relationship with God. However, Christianity is different. It is God seeking a relationship with us. God began by seeking Adam in the garden when he called out, Adam, where are you? Jesus himself said, I come to seek and to save that which is lost. Provenient grace is God working in our lives from the moment we are conceived until that special moment when we, by faith, accept God's free gift of salvation. That's right. God, in His love, takes the initiative to seek and to reach us. Max Lucado, in his book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, tells the story of Maria and her daughter, Christina. Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Christina wanted to see the world. So one morning, she ran away, breaking her mother's heart, her mother knew what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter. So Maria quickly packed to go find her daughter. On the way to the bus stop, she went to the, a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all the money she could on pictures of herself. And with her purse full of small black and white photos, she got on the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money, and she also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And so Maria began her search in bars and hotels and nightclubs. And at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, or fastened to a corner phone booth. On the back of each photo, she wrote a note it wasn't too long before Maria's money and pictures ran out and she had to go home. It was a while later that Christina was coming down the stairs in a seedy hotel. Her dreams had become a nightmare. Her life had become a sinful mess. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small black and white picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. And written on the back, Maria the mother had written this, Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And Christina went home. And God desires that all of us would come home. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we have become. We can always come home to Him. And like Maria, searching and reaching out for her daughter, even when her daughter didn't realize it, 
in provenient grace, God is searching for us while, while we are living a life of sin, while we are still lost. God is reaching out to us, longing, desiring to bring us home, wanting to have a personal relationship with us. Provenient grace is the beginning of our journey to God. As Newton writes, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home."
watching a television show recently where a young woman was singing. And when she finished, she said to the audience, all of you need to live into your own truth. Well, I know that's a very popular way of thinking today. In that moment, it struck me as an odd thing to say because that is exactly opposite of what the Bible says about truth. We do not find truth within ourselves, and we are not called to live our own truth. You see, truth by its very nature is exclusive. If something is true, then its opposite cannot also be true. That's just the way truth operates, no matter what a person may feel about it. And so if everyone in the world is trying to find their own subjective truth, it only leads to more confusion rather than to greater peace. Christians believe that truth is more than belief, and truth is more than a philosophical concept, but truth is found in a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus made this claim about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That declarative statement tells us something very, very important. Christianity does not give us the option of many beliefs or truths. And in that way, Christianity is uniquely different from every other faith system. Other world religions teach that we have to get ourselves together. We have to pray so many times a day. We have to give alms to the poor. We have to fast. We have to take a pilgrimage. We have to use a prayer wheel, not eat certain foods. We have to live a moral life in any number of other possibilities. And that if we do these things, then maybe we'll work our way to nirvana or paradise or heaven or to God. But Christianity says something very different. We will never earn our way to heaven, and we can never earn our way to a right relationship with God. We do not have what it takes to do that if we had a thousand lifetimes. But Christianity says when we could not come to God, when we could not earn our way, God took the initiative to come and save us. That's what we call grace. And because of his great grace, God sent his son to rescue us from the consequences of sin and death. And in Jesus Christ, we are offered the threefold gift of forgiveness of our sins, abundant life now, and eternal life forever. God is not unknowable, as some would say. God is not unreachable, as some would say. God is not a force. We are not alone, as some would say. But because of Jesus, we know the way. We have the truth, and we experience real life. Many of us have experienced that in a personal way. But there are more than five billion people on planet Earth who have not. What about them? What about those who have never heard the truth of Jesus? I do not have neatly packaged answers to those kinds of questions. But I do want to highlight three convictions about truth that we believe are essential. Conviction one, Jesus is the only Lord and Savior from heaven.
The whole Bible testifies to that. The Old Testament points us to a coming Messiah. The New Testament names Jesus as the Christ. The Apostle Peter said, Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. Apart from the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel, there is no mission, and there is no good news. There is no other name, no other way, no other gate, no other life, no other Savior but Jesus. There is no other way to God but through faith in Him. And wherever God is saving people and making all things new, Jesus is at work. Conviction two, Jesus is the source of all truth, and he is the final judge of all people. God is perfectly loving and perfectly just, and we gladly leave it to God to do the final sorting out of all things. We believe that the Holy Spirit is present wherever people are being drawn to God because it is God's will that no one would be lost, but that all would come to him. And we trust that in the end, God's judgment will be fair, will be right, and will be true. And we believe that heaven will have plenty of surprises for all of us. We expect to be overwhelmed by the saving grace of God when we enter the place Jesus is preparing. And then conviction three, it is our calling as the church and our privilege as his bride to bear witness to the good news. Some Christians take the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, as a strategy to win philosophical arguments, or worse, to beat up on people who don't follow Jesus. That seems tragic to me. Gandhi was once heard to say, I might have become a Christian were it not for the Christians I have met. Brothers and sisters, we do not gain anything by being argumentative and hostile with people who don't believe as we do. We do not honor Christ by driving others into the ground in his name. Because for truth to be compelling and for it to be believable, it must be expressed in love. The Apostle Paul said it very well, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Then what do we do? Love them. Patiently pray for them. Consistently share the truth with them and live before them as the embodiment of Christ. We believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But we must live that truth in a way that expresses his life. And so we proclaim it without arrogance, without self-pride, but in the humility and through the servant heart of our Lord. Jesus is the truth.
So what are the implications of Jesus' profound statement that he is the truth? When some of his followers suggested to Jesus that their religion and their ethnic heritage was enough for them to consider themselves free people, Jesus said to them in John 8, 32, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What a powerful, liberating response. As we journey with Jesus and get close to Him, thanks to the prevenient grace of God, through the work of His Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of God reveals to us the entire truth of the person of Christ, that absolute truth that has the power to indeed set us free. In our journey with Christ, even before we become believers, through His prevenient grace, the Holy Spirit leads us to the knowledge and the experience of the fullness of Christ, the truth. First, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the Lordship of Christ. As we journey with Christ through our communion with God's Word and God's people, we realize, just as Peter and the disciples did in Acts 5.31, that Jesus is the one whom God exalted to be proclaimed as Lord and Savior, to grant repentance to His people and to provide forgiveness of all sins. Second, the Holy Spirit exposes us to the love of Christ. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians reminds them that we are compelled by the love of Christ because by the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know that out of love, Jesus died to save us so that we could all love others into his kingdom. His gift of salvation is a gift of love. Finally, the Holy Spirit helps us encounter the light of Christ. In John 8:12, Jesus spoke to the people and said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we journey with Jesus, His light reveals to us how dark our lives are without the fullness of His presence in us. The light of Christ answers many of the life questions of our journey. His light evidences the darkness of our empty lives without Him. His light points at our sins and weaknesses. His light convinces us of our need of His love. This revealing, compelling, and convincing work of the Holy Spirit leads us, the people who journey with Christ, to the point in which such lordship, such love, and such light are so overwhelming that we respond to the offer of grace, redemption, justification, and forgiveness. And in a willful act of faith, we embrace the gift of salvation. We enter into God's saving grace when we embrace the truth that sets us free. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, explains with eloquence that special moment when, by faith, we embrace God's saving grace, as expressed in Romans 10, 9-10. First, we receive by faith the gift of salvation. Second, we believe in our hearts the truth of the Lordship of Christ. And finally, we confess that He has the Power over sin and death, and we join Him with thanksgiving as liberated people. And we are saved. That simple. 
That is the essence of the gospel. Moved by the Holy Spirit, we receive, believe, and confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ to experience the fullness of His saving grace. When Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, He was saying that when you, through the work of the Holy Spirit, get to know the Son of God, that truth, the Lord Jesus, and He alone will set you truly free. Jesus affirmed that again in John 8:36, when He said, So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God's saving grace through faith in Jesus the Son and by the convincing of the Holy Spirit gives us total liberation, total salvation. It frees us from sin. Our sins are nailed on the cross. It liberates us from guilt. Our past is not only forgiven, it is forgotten. And it places us in a direct relationship with God, our Creator, without the need for intermediaries. The veil of the temple is open for all of us. God's saving grace, through the knowledge and acceptance of Jesus, the truth, makes us free indeed. Praise be to God. Ya libre soy, Dios me salvó. Ya él rompió y como un río fluye el perdón, sublime gracia inmenso amor, inmenso amor.
My grandmother, Evelina Malati, played a vital role in discipling me. I will always be grateful for the times we spent together in prayer, reading, and interpreting the scriptures. On one occasion, while talking about holy living, she said, holy living is not merely an intellectual exercise or simply keeping a list of rules. It is true that acquiring knowledge about God and our experiences of grace are critical in our walk with the Lord. But holy living is made possible by God as we respond to His grace, as we put our trust in Jesus and allow God to cleanse us continuously. Holy living is only possible as we reside in God and God in us. God calls us to live a holy life. Not only does He call us to be holy, but He provides the means for our holiness. The followers of Christ are holy only in relationship to God. We cannot live a Christ-like life apart from Jesus, who is the life. Through Jesus, we are reconciled with God and can continuously experience the transformational work of God in our lives, making us holy. God desires to dwell with His people always, to give a new life, to make His people holy, enabling them to live godly lives. God's presence leads to a life of obedience, undivided love, and loyalty to God. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. Notice that keeping God's commands is grounded in love for God. It is grounded in a relationship with God. The transformational work that is taking place inwardly, in the heart, is rooted in a life of undivided love and loyalty to God and is reflected in the way that we live. God makes holy living possible. So God's presence in our lives is indispensable. Therefore, it is important as we look at John 14 again to see that Jesus assured his disciples that even though he was returning to the Father, God's presence will continue to be with his people. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Through the Holy Spirit, the presence of God continues to be with us. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, another one like Jesus, who comes alongside the followers of Jesus to be a continued presence of God in the world. God's presence is transformational. He saves, makes holy, empowers for a Christ-like life, and enables us to participate fully in God's redemptive plan in the world. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. Through the Holy Spirit's work, God continues to draw and awaken everyone to his or her need for God. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to understand, live, and grow in God's truth. And living and drawing in truth sets us free from sin and the bondage of sin. 
This freedom begins with putting one's trust in Jesus Christ and remaining in the path of trusting Him. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live fully consecrated to God. So I pray that we will always remain in Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach and guide us in all truth. When the Apostle Paul writes his letters to the different churches, he often refers to the people in those churches as saints. Why would he do that? Surely there couldn't have been many individuals among those congregations who had achieved sainthood. Or maybe there really were those who could be called saints, and we are the ones who don't clearly understand Paul's definition. We have been influenced by broader church history that has chosen to create a particular standard for someone to be considered a saint. I would like to suggest that Paul was simply referring to those within the church community who'd been on the journey of grace and had come to experience God's sanctifying grace. They were now God's holy people, living out the life of discipleship through the entire indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Not long ago, I discovered a district journal from 1914 that recorded the Second Assembly of the Nebraska District, over which Dr. Phineas F. Brzee presided. Dr. Brzee, the founding father of the Church of the Nazarene, spoke passionately about the need for God's people to experience the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. The secretary at the assembly recorded in great detail the events of the gathering, as well as the preaching and engagement of Dr. Brzee. It was his desire that all those who found themselves within the life of the Church of the Nazarene would experience sanctifying grace. He preached that Christ's grace was drawing disciples into fellowship with the triune God. It is the divine nature found in God that spills over into the life of a disciple experiencing sanctifying grace. Holy love is that nature that is found within the Trinity. A divine relationship where the Father loves the Son, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Son, who loves the Father. God's people are welcomed into the fellowship of this holy love where lives are radically transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. All of this is made possible because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but Jesus became like us so that we could become like Him. His humanity opens the door for our humanity to be united to our holy God. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Far too often, we stop short of what God truly wants for our lives, creating our own obstacles to grace. 
It is grace that will draw us along in the journey, moving us to respond to prevenient grace, accepting God's saving grace, and living in sanctifying grace. Recently, I was watching a program called The Chosen about the life of Jesus Christ. A man came to speak with Jesus, but was not prepared to follow him. Jesus replied to the man, I ask a lot of those who follow me, but little of those who don't. Jesus called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. The cross was a symbol of submission to Roman authority. For those disciples, the cross became the symbol of entire submission to the authority of God's kingdom. And this was possible because of grace. To the saints in the Church of the Nazarene, I encourage you to continue living and growing in grace. Allow your life to be defined by wholehearted love for God, which will be expressed in love for your neighbor. Those living in sanctifying grace will continue to grow closer to the Lord, serving as living reflections of Jesus in this world. Sanctifying grace transforms us into Christ-like disciples. Through grace, He became what we are so that we could become like Him.
Hey, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. If you would like to connect with me or Greencastle Church of the Nazarene, you can find us on Facebook at Greencastle Nazarene and also on our website, www.greencastlenazarene.com. May you have a blessed and wonderful day in the Lord.